Well, good morning. When you think of a uh, Father's Day message, you usually think of, I guess in your mind, you would imagine a very mature uh, father coming up to speak and to give a message. So no doubt all of you walked in here thinking, I hope Nick Weaver's speaking this morning. <laughs> of course, that's a joke. Uh, Pete asked me to speak on this day, and I looked at the calendar, and I said, Pete, I, uh, I don't think I'm qualified to speak on Father's Day yet. I don't have a child that I know of. No, I'm kidding. No child. Um, I said, I don't think I'm qualified. And he said, well, you don't have to give a Father's Day message. Just give whatever message, you know, you feel is from the Lord. And so uh, we're going to be continuing in uh, James this morning. It's uh, no coincidence, I don't think, that we come to this passage because the passage we'll be considering this morning is um, one that is applicable to every person here, but I think has a special application to fathers, a special application to fathers. Um before we dive into the passage, I, I just want to tell you a, a little story, I guess, that would introduce the topic that we'll be considering this morning. There's, a, I grew up in California, for those of you that don't know me, I grew up in California, and there was a church there that I attended uh, my whole life. Um, and just down the street from this church was this old retirement home, and it was a retirement home uh, used specifically for people that were like missionaries, you know, people who served the Lord their whole life, and obviously um, for most missionaries or servants of the Lord in that way, they come to a point where they retire, and yet because of how they've spent their life, they don't necessarily have the funds that would be available to support them in their retirement. And so there was this home that was supported by a lot of churches in the local area, and they would basically um, help these um, retired missionaries. And I loved going there. I loved going there because I loved being around these old people. Uh, these old people that were just so faithful for, to the Lord their whole life, and they had so much great advice that they could give. And there was one time I was uh, talking to a, a brother, and it was its kind of cool. Sometimes you don't even have to ask them these questions. They'll just start pouring their wisdom on you. Well, this guy started talking to me. He told me this story about his friend. And uh, his friend was actually a very successful businessman. Uh, he, I think he was in the accounting department of a... Um, a fairly large business, was very successful, was making a lot of money. But this man was also a very gifted individual, at least as far as teaching the Word of God was concerned. Uh, he was a very faithful man in the assembly and teaching the Bible. But it seems like as he went on in his career, he just became more and more successful. And as he got promoted various times, all of these promotions would then... Um, I guess, restrict his schedule in a sense. And, and all of these promotions that he would get would restrict the freedom that he had to be involved in the church that he was um, attending. And it came to a point where he started to really think with his wife, maybe we should start limiting our, um, our, our, our work schedule so then we can be more available. Well, shortly after they came to that decision, he got approached by the owner of the company, and they said, you know, we've really noticed how you've done so well for this company. We'd like to promote you even higher, and uh, we'd like you to be president of the company. And he thought about this, and he thought, well, it comes with a lot of pay increase. It comes with a lot of good benefits, and I'm only working for maybe five more years before I retire. Him and his wife started talking, and they said, well, does it make sense to really, you know, limit our time now working when we only have five years left. They had a lot of plans in their retirement, a lot of things to look forward to, and they were so close, and they thought, well, why don't we just take these five years 
we'll take this position, we'll get the increase in pay, uh, we'll put ourselves in a better position to be able to do more when we retire. And so they ended up saying yes to the position, and he became president. And, and this guy, uh, he very much looked forward to retirement. Uh, you very much look forward to retirement. He, he looked forward to, he had a big library in his office, uh, uh, full of books that he looked forward to reading that he just didn't have time for. And he'd accumulate more and more books, and he'd spend his mornings in there, and he'd look at his books, and he, it would just make him excited for retirement all the more. So five years later, after he retired, uh, unfortunately for this man, um, he suffered a severe stroke, uh, a stroke that was so severe that it really inhibited his ability to be able to open any book, any scriptures, and be able to really process what was going on. This is something that actually happened to my grandfather as well. Uh, my grandfather told me, he said, if, if I were to pick up a book today and try and read it, he said it would take me five minutes to just get through one sentence. And even in those five minutes, I would be battling the whole time, just staying focused. So it's a, it's a common thing. Well, that, that happened to this man. And there he was, finally retired. He had spent his whole life working up to this moment. Him and his wife had made many plans to do great things, to enjoy life, but also to do things for the Lord and to serve others. And here he is in his retirement. And this, this older brother told me, he said he goes into his study and, he, and all he sees are all of these books that he had every intention to read and study, and yet now he, has, he doesn't have the ability to do so. And this man told me, he said, all he does, he can't help but look at all of his books and think, I've wasted my life. I've wasted my life. I've wasted my life. And this older man, he looked at me and he said, Nick, don't you waste your life. Don't you waste your life. There aren't many things in life, I would say, that really fill my heart with fear, but that's one thing I will say. Getting to the end, or getting to a point in life where the end seems so much closer than the beginning, and yet looking back and seeing the fact that I've wasted my life. No doubt this man did things for the Lord, and he, he, he did use his life well in some ways, but yet as he evaluates his life, at that point in his life, he realized that there was so much more he could have done. He wasted his life. Well, turn with me to James chapter 4. Uh, James has uh, something to be said on this, this idea. I've told you how, how that's one thing that I kind of fear. And I think, uh, you know, being a fairly uh, newly wedded husband, we've been married, Maggie and I, for almost four years now. Uh, but, but there comes a point in time where you realize that as, a, as the leader of a household, um, there's a greater responsibility, I think, to lead your family well, to do things well. Because oftentimes where the, where the, where the husband or the father leads, that's the direction the whole family goes in. Um, and I can't, can't read this passage without thinking of the added weight to me, and I'm sure many others could do the same as well. Uh, James chapter 4 and verse 13 uh, James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what, you, what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. 
All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Uh, Let's just pray once more. Our Father in heaven, we do just uh, come before you this morning and we realize that um, we are in desperate need of your help uh, in this time. Father, I think of uh, what the Lord Jesus would say when he was uh, just about to uh, go back to heaven. He, He would say that it's actually a better thing for you that I leave. And yet here was the Son of God, the one who could communicate the very heart of God in a in a perfect and precise way, and yet he would say, it's actually better for me to leave. And we realize, Father, that it was better for him to leave because he was going to send the Holy Spirit down to, to, to help us and to guide us in times such as this. And so, Father, we just ask that you would, uh, in a way that only your Spirit could, um, guide this time that we have together. Father, that it would be your spirit speaking to our hearts, that it would be your spirit uh, changing our hearts and showing us ways in which we need you all the more. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If I don't tell you now, I'll probably forget later. There are three things that we're going to uh, point out with the Lord's help in this time that we have together. Three things in this passage, and I'll try to keep keep, keep it simple. The first thing we're going to see is the issue. Uh, the issue James is addressing. The second thing we're going to look at is the illustration he gives. And then thirdly, the instruction. The instruction that he gives. So the issue, the illustration, and the instruction that comes with this passage. I've said it before, but James here is a um, very special book. Although I, I say that realizing that every book in the Bible is special. But James is special or unique in its sense that James is, at least as far as we have and as far as we understand, uh, the first book of the New Testament. That is the oldest book that we have written. A lot of smart guys have gotten together and they've looked at all of the documents that we have of the various passages of Scripture that we have. And they've come to agree that James is indeed the first book that we have written. Um, here, James is writing a letter to a group of, uh, of newly saved Christians, but it's important to note as you look at James that James is writing to the very first generation of Christians, uh, the very first generation of Christians. This is a group of people who had come to uh, hear the, the gospel, they have come to be saved, and now they are children of God. And James is writing this letter, instructing them on how now they are to live their lives as children of God. But we come to a chapter like chapter 4, and chapter 4, James is emphasizing not how they are to live, but how they are not to live. And if you were to look at chapter 4 and and put a heading over chapter 4, I think it's appropriate to put the heading as um, neglecting God, the the neglecting of God, or the disregarding of God. We saw in verses 1 through 10, as we've looked through this chapter already, Um, These people had disregarded God, um, and in place of of God, they had placed their own desires. They had placed their own covetousness, their own hopes in life, their their own idolatry. They had disregarded God in that way. And James has addressed how they had disregarded God. Um, through their various covetousness and so on. We saw last time I spoke uh, that they had disregarded God in the judging of another person. James points out very specifically, if if you look at your brother and you judge your brother, you're not just judging your brother, but you're disregarding God in the sense that you're saying, Lord, I know the Bible says that I don't need to judge my brother or sister, but I'm going to do so anyways. 
In other words, I am disregarding you by saying this portion of the word of God does not apply to me. And so we come here now to a, a passage where it seems like James is addressing that these people have disregarded God in their plans, in their hopes, in their dreams for the future. But the first thing that kind of shouts off the page as you read this passage, you really have to ask yourself, James, what's the issue? I mean, you look at it and, and it seems like this is maybe something that you hear in everyday language. In fact, this is probably something that we might have had a conversation over the break about our, our, our vacation plans or hopes for the summer or whatever the case is. Verse 13, it's just a guy who says, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to spend a year there. We have these plans to do this and we're going to make some money. Like to me, you read that and you, you think, I mean, that kind of sounds like my life. You know, it kind of sounds like your life. So what's the problem? I mean, we have these plans. We have these jobs that the Lord has given us. We have these responsibilities in life that we're to accomplish. So, James, what's the problem? What's the issue here? There are two things that I want to point out to you as far as the issue is. And the first thing is that they've disregarded God in their plans. They've disregarded God in their plans. If you look at verse 13, is there any hint of any acknowledgement of God at all in their plans? Not one. In fact, this person who's making his plans is so confident in himself, it's almost as if there's no need for God. I mean, I have all these plans, I have these abilities, I have this business, I have these skills that I've acquired through life. And I have all of these things that I'm going to do. The road is set before me and I'm going to go. And I plan on making this much. I plan on spending this much time here. I plan on doing this. All of these plans, but do any of them regard God at all? And the, question, and the answer is no. You read that, there is no regard. There is not even a hint of this person seeking the Lord out in their plans. And so they disregarded God in their lives. It's interesting, if you were to look up the word prophet and at the end of verse 13 it says that this person has a plan that he's going to go to such and such a place he's going to spend a year there he's going to be involved in these business and it says that he's going to do so to make a profit if you were to look at this word profit um it's 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 interesting how it has a general um interpretation okay so in, in some places you see the word like prophet used like here in james 4 but the idea also that comes with this word it's the idea of winning something, winning something. Um, I won't turn to the passage, but in Matthew 18 and verse 15, the Lord Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his faults in private. If he listens to you, what does he say? You have won your brother. And so here is a man who has set out, who, who has made out his purpose in life to go to such a place and to win in life, to win in life. You look at even in the... Um, financial realm in life today, a lot of times when people look at someone who is wealthy or well-off or successful, one phrase that they use to describe this person, you hear it all the time, is that is a person who is winning, who is winning. And so here is a man who has disregarded God in his life, and he is determined to, um, to win. And we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, is that really our attitude? I don't think James is saying in this passage that it is wrong to make plans. 
In fact, there's scripture full of ideas of how we should plan. The scripture would say a, a foolish man doesn't make plans. So we have to ask ourselves, well, James, what are you addressing then? If the, the, the issue isn't making plans, I really think what James is addressing here is the attitude behind our plans. And so we have to ask ourselves, when we look at our lives and we look at all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our plans, are we disregarding God in our plans? Do we carry that same attitude that this man had? The second thing we see, not only did they disregard God in their, la- in their lives and in their plans, but we see to an extent they determined to be God in their lives. And what do I mean by that? It's kind of a bold statement. They determined to be God in their lives. Well, they were speaking in such a way that everything was certain. I will go, and I will do this, and I will make this much money, and I will spend this much time there. As, as in, everything is set in stone in my own ability, and they had determined to, in a sense, be like God in their life. There was no need for anything else because all they had with it was themselves and their own skills. They spoke as if all that they were going to do was guaranteed. And I think we need to be very careful because we can do the same thing. And yet James asks the question, um, well, he doesn't ask the question yet, but at the beginning of verse 14, he says, wait a second, you're making all of these plans for the future. You have it all lined up, but you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You look at the news today, and, and, and it seems like every article seems to be filled with how someone's plans just weren't going according to plan. It just it didn't work out, whether that's the stock market in the financial realm, whether it's uh, lives ending far too soon, whatever the case is, it seems like the, things just aren't going according to plan. And James is saying, you're making all of these plans. You have all of these hopes but you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. So how can you really continue to have these plans? So we see the issue. They disregarded God in their lives, and they determined to be as if God, they were God in their lives. And so that brings us to the second thing, and we're going to spend a lot of time here. The second thing we see is the illustration. James then gives an illustration to help them see really the, the, the fault in their thinking. And he asks a famous question, In the middle part of verse 14, he says, for what is your life? What is your life? If you were to answer that question this morning, how how would you answer that question? What is your life? What is your life? Uh, We we look at our children, we look at some of the young people around us, and and we, we look at them and we see years of potential. We see years of, of, of planning, and if they just stay the course, if they finish school, if they get this job, they could go on and do all of these things. And yet James asks a question. He gets them to stop, and he says, for what is your life? And he gives this illustration. It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. A vapor. Some translations would read mist. Uh, one, one thing that I've uh, really gotten into lately is tea. I like drinking tea. Don't worry, coffee is always going to have a special place in my heart. Okay, I haven't, I haven't given up coffee, but I like drinking tea. Okay, um, and 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 one thing you see with tea is you boil the water and you you pour it over the the tea so that the bag can I think the correct term is seep. Am I right? Okay, um, 
one thing you see is the hot water creates this steam that goes up in the air. And you see the steam, and if you follow a strand of steam, you follow it for a second, and then all of a sudden it's gone. And that's the illustration that he gives. Is that what we would use to describe our lives? Well, wait a second, James. Um, I actually have a 30-year plan for my life. I have a a year that I've set to where I want to retire. I've met with my financial advisors. We have to just save up this much money so that we can retire at this age. And yet James says, your life is just a vapor. What, What is he saying with this illustration? I think there are a few things. You don't even have to be a great theologian to come up with these things. Um, But the first thing I think you see, James is saying in this illustration, that your lives are unsustainable. Your lives are unsustainable. There is nothing that you can do today to prolong your life or to sustain it. I mean, I realize that there are things we can do. We can exercise to put ourselves in a position where our bodies might stay healthy longer. There's medicine. There's all of these things. I don't want to disregard any of that. But in and of yourself, there is nothing that you can do today to sustain your life or to prolong it. The reality is none of us knows when our time will be up. And James is saying your life is a vapor. It's here one moment and then it's gone the next. So how can you really make this plan to leave tomorrow, to be at a place for a year and do all of these things when your life is unsustainable? The second thing we see is that your life is unpredictable. It's unpredictable. I've said it before, um, Already, uh, there's nothing we can do to know when our time will be up. Uh, a lot of times, um, my grandfather recently had, um, I don't know, a few years ago, he had, he had real issues with his lungs and breathing. And there was a lot of fluids building up in his chest around his heart and all of these things. And the doctor said, you know, you'll, you'll be lucky to have a couple months left. And uh, praise the Lord, they were wrong because here we are years later and he's still going. Uh, there, there are moments where it seems like there are, there's only a certain amount of time left in a person's life, and yet the Lord prolongs it for whatever reason only he knows. But then there are also times in which you look at someone's life, and it seems like they should have years going forward, and yet in a moment, the Lord calls them home. Our lives are unsustainable, and they're unpredictable. I want to take the time to turn over to the Gospel of Luke, if you would. Uh, There's an illustration here that the Lord Jesus gives that I think really fits in this passage well. Um, Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. uh, Here's the Lord Jesus. Um, It's it's important to note as you read through the Gospels, as you read through the Bibles, to really try and think through um, what these words that the Lord spoke would have meant to these people. And so here is the Lord Jesus. He is... A lot of people have really have no idea what to think of the Lord Jesus at this point. Um, for the nation of Israel, there was a, a large period of time where it was predicted that someone would come. A savior is often the term you hear. Someone who is going to come and, and to save their people from various things. But then it seems like for 300 years or three or 400 years, um, there's a, a, a silent period where the Lord doesn't send anyone else to his people. There's this period in the Old Testament you see where it seems like time after time after time the Lord is sending prophets to his people, telling them about the things they need to do and the fact that this Messiah, the Savior, is coming. 
And then there's this lull period where there's no, no, there's nothing said. And then we have this man, the Lord Jesus, who comes. And people really have no idea what to do with this man because they had these expectations that he would come in this way, and yet here is this man who doesn't necessarily fit the description. They were expecting someone who was, you know, mighty and powerful, someone who was going to save them in, in battle and so on. And yet here is the Lord Jesus who is really just a humble guy. He comes from a, a humble family. There's really not much known about him besides the fact that he's performed all of these miracles, he's doing all of these things, and he's giving all of these messages that are contrary to, to how they would think and, and view life. Well, here he is, here's the Lord Jesus, and this man comes up to him. He must have been an American, because you would think, you know, here is this, this person who might be the Messiah. You think of all the questions you could ask him. And yet this man comes to him. He wasn't American. That was a joke. Okay. Just want to, I just want to be clear. Um, Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. This man has one concern on his heart. Out of everything he could ask, notice what the concern is. In, in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, he says, Then one from the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, that's his concern. I mean, out of everything, here is someone who very well could be the Messiah the Son of God, and yet I'm going to come. Think of all the questions you could ask him. Why is the sky blue? I mean, that seems like a better question to ask than, than what this man asked, but he has one concern. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I have this problem, Lord. This money was left, and, and there, there, there must have been some sort of discrepancy that took place because it all went to my brother. Can you just tell him to give some to me? I mean, that, I mean that's, that's really the one concern he has. Look what the Lord Jesus says. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will put down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all of my crops and all of my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich. Toward God. You have to ask yourself, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is this man was making all of these plans, and yet the Lord says, You're a fool. Why? Because his plans ended at the grave. His plans ended at the grave. And maybe you're here today and you have your plans for life. Uh, we have to be so careful of this because. Um, I joke about having a 30-year plan, but it seems like in our society, that's such a normal thing to do. Even for young people, yeah, you just graduated high school, and all of a sudden, it seems like you turn 18, and you have to have the next 50 years of your life planned. You're going to go to, what college are you going to go to? What degree are you going to get? What job are you hoping to, 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 to possess and to make money and all of these things? And yet, here is this man, and he has a great year business as far as business is concerned. He has a problem that I, that I think all of us wish we had. We have all of these possessions and, and we're running out of space because we're so blessed. 
So what am I going to do? I, I know I'm going to I'm going to tear down my 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 basement. I'm going to make it even bigger so that I can store my possessions even better. Oh, and you know what? I'm so set up well that I have I I, I can live in abundance for many years. I have so many possessions. I have so many things. My 401k shot through the roof. I'm doing great. And yet, what does the Lord say? He says, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you. What was the problem? Well, this man really wasn't conscious of eternity at all. He was very successful in this life. Very successful in this life. And yet, his plans failed to include what life would be after his death. So we have to ask ourselves, if the Lord required our soul of us today, what would our plan be? Do we have a plan? Because I know this is such a sad thought to think, but the reality is that it's true for each and every one of us that the Lord might require our life before even this hour is over. And like I said, there's nothing we can do to sustain our lives. There's nothing we can do to predict that moment, but it's going to come for each and every one of us. I, I look at the audience, and, and no doubt there are, there are some older, older people here that the Lord has been so gracious to prolong their life and to give them so many years to enjoy life. But each and every one of us can think of people whose lives ended far too short. So we have to ask ourselves, do we have a plan? For eternity, what would we do? It's interesting in this parable that the Lord gives. It's it's um, important to notice that um, what the Lord is saying is that a man is not measured by what he has, but the Lord measures each man by what he is. You look at this world today, and they measure, they size each other up based on what car you drive, based on what clothes you're wearing, how big your house is, and all of these things. And the Lord says. Even if you have an abundance of possessions, that doesn't define your life. Why? Because in God's eyes, it doesn't matter how much you have, but it's who you are. It's who you are. And before the Lord God today, uh, who are you? What is your standing as far as uh, before God is concerned? Many of us today would say that our standing is on, on the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. And others, perhaps, maybe you're just trying to, to make it with your plans. And yet the Lord's, the Lord's going to, each and every one of us are going to come to a point in our life where the Lord is going to judge each and every one of us, not based on what we have, but based on who we are. And the, and the, the word of God is very clear that there's only one thing that matters as far as God's sight is concerned of a person, and that is who they are in Christ. You see, here's the Lord Jesus. He's on the road. He, 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 he's healing the sick. He's healing the blind. He's doing all of these miracles. And yet he comes with the intention of doing one thing, and that is bringing these people to his Father in a relationship with him. And he does so by giving himself on the cross. And so there comes a point in time where each and every one of us are going to stand before the Lord, and he's going to ask one question. Who are you? Are you in my son? Or are you just relying on your own abilities? 
A lot of the, the people in this world will say, you, in order to please God, you have to do this. You have to say this prayer. You have to go to church on this day. You have to give this much money. You have to do this and do that and do that. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he says, you don't have to do anything because it's already done. It's been said that there are only two types of religions in this world. Those that say do, 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 and there's one who says done. Because the, the word of God is very clear that he views the good things that we do in it of ourselves, and he says they're like filthy rags. Why? Because if, if I myself am, am contaminated in sin, and yet I come to a holy God trying to do the very best I can, he looks at my life and he says it's not good enough because you have to be perfect. And no one's perfect, and that's why he gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come. And so we have to ask ourselves, uh, what what is our plan for the future? Do we have a plan? And yet the Lord says, he says to this man, you are a fool. No doubt you were successful, but you were a fool because your plans ended at the grave. Where do your plans end? Where do your plans end? And so James gives this illustration to communicate that their lives are unsustainable, they're unpredictable. But one thing that is very clear in this is that James says their lives were unavailable. They were unavailable. Why? Because they had so many plans. They had so many plans, so many hopes to complete in their life. And James is calling them not to waste their life in the frivolous things that they're involved in. And, and I can't help but think about, about the fact that James calls her life a vapor. It's here one moment and gone the rest. They're gone the next. Each and every one of us, we need to look at our lives and realize the life that we live, as far as eternity is concerned, is but a moment. What are you doing with your moment? What are you doing with your vapor? We need to make ourselves available for the Lord Jesus Christ and his use. Whether you're retired, whether you're a 10-year-old, or whether you're a college student, or anything in between, you need to make yourself available to the Lord. And yet James is saying, here you are, you've made all of these plans, and none of them include the Lord. Or maybe you make all of your plans and hope that the Lord just fits in somewhere. But how many of us really make ourselves available to the Lord, forming our life and all of our hopes and all of our dreams around what the Lord would have us do in our life? We need to make ourselves available to the Lord. And, and the tendency that we often have is to wait uh, for life to slow down. Um, I, I, I've said before, I'm, I'm not a parent. I don't have any children. And, I, and I, I've been around young um, parents my whole life. And and one thing I see is that there are just some periods in life where it seems like it's so busy. You know, the kids are young and they just need every moment of your life. And the tendency that we have in, in every phase of life is just to wait till it slows down a little bit. Lord, I know there's there's some good things I should be involved in. There's some things that I should do. But let me just wait until I, I get out of this phase. And let me tell you, a lot of Christians waste their life waiting for life to slow down. And we might get out of one phase and enter the next phase and realize that the next phase is even busier. And so we need to be very careful. We need to ask ourselves, are we available to the Lord? I heard a testimony recently of a man in Omaha who got saved. If you want a good testimony, listen to you. Come see me and I'll send it to you. It's really great. Um, but he said before he was uh, had gone into full-time ministry for the Lord, he said one thing that he often said to himself was, once I become 
once I go into full-time ministry, I'm going to have more time to pray. I'm going to have more time to, to study and all of these things. But he said, but I found that when I went into full-time ministry, I got even busier than when I was working. And he said something that, that, that really stayed with me. He said, it's not about how much time you have available, but it's about how much time you're willing to sacrifice. So we need to ask ourselves, are we available for the Lord's use? You have one vapor. Some vapors seem to last longer than others, but what are you doing with yours? And so the illustration shows that um, their, their lives are just a vapor. Um, one, one more thing I, I, I want to say. Um, as parents, I think we also... I'm just trying to think of how it's Father's Day. I'm trying to incorporate these things. So I feel like I need to, okay? Okay. Um, but I really think parents, we, we need to be very careful about the things that we are impressing on our children. And, I, and I'm going to tell you a story that, and this isn't from myself. Um, there's, a, there's an older brother back home in Claremont. I won't say his name, uh, but, but he's older now. His, his children are fully grown, and they all have kids of their own now themselves. And growing up, their children, even still today, very athletic. Very athletic. And uh, when he was a young parent, he realized how athletic all of his kids are. And so one thing he started to impress on them is we need to get these kids in sports. And the kids loved playing sports, and they just, they, they, they just continued on. And as the kids got older, well, you know, high school season's over. Why don't we sign him up for club? Well, the problem was club season, a lot of tournaments run through the weekends, and they play through Sundays, and so that required their kids to, to miss a lot of um, activities that they would like their kids to be involved, but they said, you know, it's just a season in life. Let's um, let's just keep on going. And uh, he was telling this story to another brother, and I just happened to be standing there as well. It's like one of those awkward, you know, third wheel situations. You're standing there. You don't really know, it's, should I leave or whatever? Because it really doesn't involve me. But anyways, I'm just standing there, and I'm benefiting from this conversation. And um, he got to a point where he got older. All of his kids were older. And he realized that none of his kids were even at the meeting anymore. They had left. Um, they, they were still saved. They still had a desire to, to be a part of churches and so on. But they, but they were gone. And he looked around at the church and he saw people that were the same age as his children. And they were all still there. And he looked at my friend who was entering into fatherhood. And that's why he was having this conversation with him. And he said, if there's one thing I would change... I wish I could change the things that I made important to my kids when they were little. Now, I want to be clear. I have one regret growing up. Ironically, it's that I didn't play more sports. Okay? So I'm not saying that, that sports are of the devil or whatever the case is. But what I am saying is we need to be very careful, very mindful about the things that we impress on our children. Um, one last thing that we see in this passage is the instruction that James carries with this passage. Um, I noticed, or I've noted before that James is not speaking specifically about the, the idea of plans, but he's talking about the attitude behind the plans. But notice in verse 15, he gives an instruction. He, said in, he says in verse 15, Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So what is the attitude that James wants us to carry on? The attitude is dependency. Dependency. Notice um, he says, um, but instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. 
Uh, if, you're, if you're around a lot of old timers, especially in our circles, you hear a lot of people say, well, well Lord willing, we're going to go down for lunch after meeting or whatever the case is. And I remember hearing that as a kid thinking, Lord willing, I knew it came from this passage. And I was like, is that just some sort of um, good luck charm that we say? But, but what is it that James is saying? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. You need to have the spirit of uh, dependency because this, this phrase, Lord willing, is really supposed to reflect someone's whole attitude or realization in life. In other words, by saying Lord willing, James is saying you should realize that you are capable of doing nothing unless the Lord wills for you to do so. And notice, so he says not only um, should you have this level of dependency, but notice he doesn't say you should say if the Lord wills, we will do this. No, look at the first thing he points out. He says, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this. You see, James is saying you need to realize that the only reason why you're here is because the Lord is gracious enough to allow you to be here. The only reason why your lungs are working and bringing in this, this oxygen into your lungs is because the Lord is gracious and is willing you to live. And so James is saying you need to have this spirit of dependency, realizing that unless the Lord wills, I'm not even, I'm not even going to live. Unless the Lord is gracious and kind and in order to allow me to continue for my body to function and operate correctly, my goose is cooked. There's nothing I can do in and of myself to sustain life. And James is saying that you need to have this spirit of dependency. But one thing about this, this idea of saying, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. We also need to be willing to accept that maybe the Lord won't will for our plans to come to fruition. And that's hard. Uh, that's hard for a lot of us if we, we, we're in this exciting phase of life, whether it's you're entering in this relationship with a person, you're starting this new job, whatever the case is, you have all of these plans and all of these hopes. And yet James is saying you need to realize you need to be humble and surrender yourself to the Lord and be willing to accept that maybe the Lord won't will for these things to happen. It's very difficult. Uh, so James is saying you need to have a, a spirit of dependency, but I want you to also see the design in this instruction. The design. I think there's a lot of liberty that comes in realizing that nothing will come upon me unless the Lord wills for it to happen. In other words, you look at the difficulties in life. You look at the trials each and every one of us face. And a lot of times people respond to these trials and just ask, Lord, where are you? Are you even here? And yet James is saying that the way the Lord has designed our life, it is so liberating to realize that nothing happens to us unless the all-powerful and all-loving God allows it to happen. And we need to take rest in that realizing that we might not understand why the Lord would allow these things to happen or allow for our plans to just fall fall through the floor. I think there's a lot of liberty that comes with that. Uh, we're running out of time, but the last thing he points out is that um, instead of them having this spirit of dependency, they were distracted. They were distracted. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, but now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. But now you boast in your arrogance. It's interesting, if you were to look up this word for arrogance, um, there's, there's some uh, differing uh, translations on this because 
Um, it's, a, it's a strong word. A lot of times people don't really know what to do with it, and it's only used twice in the New Testament. The one other time is in 1 John 2.16. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and notice what he says, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. That's the whole idea. James is saying, but now you boast in your arrogance. In other words, you're boasting in your own ability to, to complete these tasks and do, do all of these things. And it's very interesting. I was doing some research on this word. And one, one person defines it this way. One who makes more of himself than reality justifies. Uh, it's often used for philosophers, doctors, cooks, and officials. In other words, uh, you, you would hear, um, I guess there was a problem in the, in, in, when, you know, science wasn't as developed. I know there's a lot of medical people who could probably, you know, do a better job explaining this than I would, but there, the science wasn't as developed or whatever the case was, and you, you would have this problem with doctors going around promising cures. Oh, you have this problem? Oh, that's no problem. I, I dealt with a guy last week that had that problem. As long as you give me this much money, then we'll get him fixed up real quick. And that was this word. In other words, they were making promises that really they weren't able to justify. They were making promises that they weren't able to really follow through. And so that's the whole idea. They were distracted by their own ability. And so we need to ask ourselves, um, do we fit that? Or are we really willing to uh, rely on the Lord and to be fully dependent upon him? I'll close with verse 17. James says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him, it is sin. When we think of sin, oftentimes we think of doing something that the Lord told us not to do. Okay, so for example, if the Bible says do not lie and then I go and lie, I think of that as a sin. We call that the, the sin of commission. I was told not to do something, but I did that very thing. And yet James says it's very easy and even very common, as common, to have the sin of omission as well. That is, if you know you ought to do something and you fail to do it, James says you're guilty of sin as well. Why, why does James end the chapter that way? Well, here he is. He's saying you have all of these plans and I've told you how it's all wrong. He says now you know what you're supposed to do and if you fail to do that, then you're just guilty before God. And so we really need to ask ourselves, we need to observe our lives um, the issue that James is addressing, does it fit my life? The plans that I have, the hopes and dreams that I have for the future, do they really include the Lord? Are they surrendered to the Lord? Or is it just me hoping that God somehow fits around the plans that I've made? So we need to observe our life. And I just want to say again, how far do your plans go? Do they end at retirement in a nursing home? Is that really what, what we would consider, you know, success in the, in, in the American life? Or does it extend so much further? Um, let's just pray and then we're going to have the baptism and that Brother Todd's going to come up with um, a message to say on that. Our Father in heaven, we do just come before you and we are uh, thankful that uh, we are your children, Lord. And we realize, Father, that we can only call ourselves yours because of all that Christ has done for us. Father, we thank you for the liberty that you've given us, Lord, um, to, to really choose how we are to live our lives. But Father, we don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to come to the uh, a point in our life at the end where we realize that we've spent so much time wasting our life, the time that you've graciously given. 
So, Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom in knowing how to plan out our future, but, Father, even more so, how to be fully dependent and fully surrendered to what you would have us do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.